We're picking back up this evening uh, after a couple of weeks in the book of Acts and tonight in the 23rd chapter. So go ahead and turn with me there now and we'll begin reading in just a few moments in verse 1. Acts chapter 23. Father, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would um, turn your face toward us and help us to understand, help us to believe and to love and to apply what you say. We ask that you would speak to us uh, clearly about our Savior tonight. Help us to embrace him and all that he calls us to. We ask in his name. Amen. When we last saw the Apostle Paul, he had just completed his third missionary journey and had made his way back in chapter 21 to the great Jewish capital of Jerusalem. And you may remember how when he arrived there, the elders of the church in that city received him gladly and gathered to hear his missionary presentation and glorified the Lord for Paul's success his gospel success among the Gentiles. But you also may remember that in spite of the warm welcome that the elders of the church gave him, that Paul, in coming to Jerusalem, was walking into a bit of a hornet's nest as well. For one thing, there were those inside the church who were a little bit suspicious of Paul. They had heard rumors that he was teaching Jewish people to forsake Jewish customs and to forego circumcising their children, and they were concerned about this. Now, those rumors weren't true, of course, and even if they had been, these things are not of the essence of the gospel, right? For Christ has rendered the Old Testament ceremonial law unnecessary, hasn't he? But evidently, many in the Jerusalem church were having trouble Uh, coming to grips with that fact. And so they were suspicious of Paul on these counts, and that made his arrival in Jerusalem just a little more sticky than it should have been. But the uneasiness that he experienced from those inside the church was nothing compared with the vitriol that he experienced from certain Jews outside the church. They had evidently heard similar rumors about Paul, And they apparently misunderstood them and or exaggerated them even more than the Christians in the city had done. So that when Paul was spotted in the temple there in Jerusalem, a mob formed and dragged him out of the temple and tried to beat him to death. And had not the local Roman commander gotten wind of the situation and rushed in to intervene, they might well have succeeded. The people hated Paul's message. Now, it doesn't appear that they had understood it very clearly, but they had evidently gotten wind that Paul's gospel rendered their Jewish customs and ceremonies no longer necessary, that Christ's coming had rendered obsolete the Old Testament rites and rituals. And this, of course, undermined their national pride of place. And they hated Paul for it, and they tried to kill him because of it. But Paul was rescued from their clutches, as we said, by this Roman commander, and eventually he was given the opportunity to make a defense before this angry horde. And he did so in chapter 22. We read he rehashed his former life as a persecutor of the church. 
his meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus, his calling to preach the gospel, and his desire to do so among his Jewish countrymen. But then he told them that God had actually called him to go far away to the Gentiles. And when Paul said this, that God had called him to preach to the Gentiles, that was simply too much for the national pride of this Jewish mob, and they cried out for Paul's execution. And then seeing how angry the crowds were, the Roman commander decided to have Paul scourged in order to try to whip out of him a confession as to why everyone was so angry with him. But having discovered that Paul was actually a Roman citizen, he had to think again, and he arranged a proper hearing before the Jewish council to find out exactly why Paul seemed to be public enemy number one amongst the Jews. And that's where we find Paul tonight in chapter 23. He's now standing before the Jewish council, ready to make a defense before them, And I want us to begin reading what happens next in verse 1, and we'll just stop when we get to verse 10 and then carry on as we go through. Acts 23, verses 1 through 10. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, what I'm going to do, hopefully, this evening is simply divide this chapter up into three portions, and we've just read the first of them, which we'll call the council, here in verses 1 through 10, the council. I just want you to notice the kind of men who are in the seats of spiritual power in Jerusalem in these days. The high priest, first of all, whom you'd expect to be a man of dignity, a man of character, a man of holiness, a man of discernment, this high priest allows no more than one sentence to pass from Paul's lips before he orders his lackeys in verse 2 to slap Paul in the face. And then notice also that a significant portion of the council is made up of these men called the Sadducees, who were the first century counterparts of modern day theological liberals. These men didn't really believe in much of anything at all, verse 8. No resurrection, no angels, no spirits. 
Religion existed for them, apparently, in the words of the missionary Paris Reedhead, because they made their living at it, and nothing more. And so we have in this council a striking picture of what had become of the Jewish people, and really a striking picture of what religion becomes almost always when Jesus is extricated from it. These men refuse to believe in God's anointed one, and so they're left with a religion that is little more than a means of self-importance and pretension and much ado about nothing. Here we have just a bunch of grown men prancing around in robes, haggling about things that they really don't even believe in anyway. And we have that in many circles today, don't we? Religion without Christ just becomes nothing. It becomes empty and pompous, just a shell. Contrast this Jewish council with the elders in the church at Jerusalem back in chapter 21. They gathered around to rejoice with Paul over the work that God was doing among the Gentiles. They listened in to how the Spirit was moving at the ends of the earth and praised God because of it. And yet the religious bigwigs in the Jewish council can't even decide if they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Contrast these men also to the apostles themselves. The apostles fanning out, according to tradition, as far away as Ethiopia and India and Britain and Armenia, preaching Jesus and suffering for Jesus and dying in the name of Jesus while these men stand around in Jerusalem drawing paychecks for doing absolutely nothing of value. And observe in all of this, I say, what becomes of religion when Jesus is extricated from it and when it's just much ado about nothing? And be warned by that. Be warned of religion without Jesus. Well, Paul evidently doesn't expect, the commentator Adam Clark says, Paul doesn't evidently expect that he'll receive much of a fair shake from such men. And so after being slapped silent in verse 2, he seems to have decided that his best defense is actually going to be to make no defense at all, but just to get these religious bumblers arguing amongst themselves. And so playing on the disagreement between the liberal and conservative factions in the group, that's exactly what Paul does in verse 6, isn't it? Crying out, I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection, excuse me, for the hope, yes, and resurrection of the dead. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And at that, the whole room turns into a dog's breakfast in verses 9 through 10, doesn't it? Everyone's shouting one thing and another, and just, again, showing just what these religious fat cats are really made out of. The Pharisees, to their credit, believe in the resurrection of the dead, but they have really no sound basis for siding with Paul. All they can say is, well, maybe he's heard about this from a spirit or an angel or something. And so they are all really Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, and so on. They're all really just what Paul called the high priest in verse 3. They're all whitewashed walls. These men are all phonies, covered over and made to look nice by the primer paint of religious ceremony and position, but underneath just a flimsy piece of religious drywall. Just two or three decades before this, God himself had come down to their city, incarnate in human flesh, 
teaching and preaching and performing miracles in their streets. And he'd been hung up to die for everyone to see just outside the city gates and buried and risen from the dead and appearing to more than 500 people, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. And the tomb was empty still to this day, and the body was gone. And for 20-plus years now, his disciples have been in Jerusalem preaching these things with miracles and signs, attesting to what they say, and thousands of converts pressing into the church. And all these religious big wheels can do is argue about whether there's even a resurrection from the dead. They've missed it all. Christ Jesus himself has walked among them and risen from the dead in their own city, and they're still quibbling over whether such a thing is even possible. And I just say to you again that this is what becomes of religion when Jesus is set to one side. Religion just becomes a series of councils and deliberations and squabbles and ceremonies which, like whitewash, disguise the fact that there's really nothing of substance going on behind the facade. Beware of that. Beware of being phony yourself. Beware of being attracted by the kind of stuff that we do when we gather on Sundays and Wednesdays and say, I really like that. I like these discussions. I like to talk about these things. But then not to have a living faith in Christ, which makes it all real. Beware of becoming like these men. So the members of the Jewish council shouted one another down until the commander was afraid for Paul's safety and transported him back to the, to the safety of the barracks. And having missed their opportunity to kill Paul before, now a cadre of men from the city determined that they're going to have another crack at it. And so we move on from the council in verses 1 through 10 to the conspiracy in verses 11 through 15. Just read those verses with me. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. The conspiracy. Now, Paul already knew from what had happened in verses 9 and 10 that he was in potential danger. And so this reassurance that he got from the Lord in verse 11 must have been a real encouragement to him. And probably all the more so when he later discovered the plot that was being devised as he lay in his jail cell. Take courage, the Lord says to him. You must witness at Rome also. And by implication, I'll keep you safe and sound until that time. I'll protect you here in Jerusalem. Take courage. Of course, that's not what these 40-plus conspirators have in mind, is it? They're not thinking about 
Paul being in Rome at all. We're not going to eat a single bite. We're not going to drink a single dram until Paul is dead and gone. And you just see the hatred that these men had for God's preacher and the links that they will go to to get rid of him. They bind themselves under a solemn oath that they will rid the world of Paul, that they will commit murder to break the commandment of God that they are so eager to defend against Paul who is supposedly preaching against it. And they're willing in verse 15 not only to use the religious leaders as part of their plot, but they're also willing to try and dupe Caesar's own representative in the city in order to make it happen. Now that's just ludicrous if you ask me. Even if they didn't have a care for what God might do to them, Surely they ought to be more careful about trying to deceive and manipulate Rome. But they're willing to risk it. And so evidently are the chief priests and the Jewish elders whom they asked to aid them in their plot. That's how badly they hate Paul's guts. That's how badly they want to get rid of him. All because, as we said at the beginning, Paul's gospel put an arrow through the heart of their pride. This Jesus whom Paul preached is the fulfillment of the Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Paul wrote in his epistle to the Romans. And so the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the customs, and yes, the priests who perform them all, are no longer necessary. And while, while Paul had not, as the rabble-rousers claimed back in chapter 21, while Paul had not gone about preaching against the Jewish people or against the temple or against the law, he had positively preached Christ. And I guess the implications were starting to become more and more clear. One did not have to be Jewish or to keep all the Old Testament ceremonies in order to be right with God. In fact, Paul seemed to be saying to these folks in his speech in chapter 22 that God has actually thrown the door open to the Gentiles as well. Which seems like wonderful news to us, but it knocked the stilts out from under many a proud Jewish heart. They were hearing that Christ and not ethnicity... Christ and not custom, Christ and not ceremony, Christ and not the temple, Christ and not the priesthood, Christ and not Judaism is the one who saves. And they didn't like it. They didn't like being told that their religion was no longer effectual. Now, in our day, the issues that may bother people are probably slightly different. People don't rely much anymore on the Old Testament customs and Jewish priests to punch their ticket to heaven, right? But the religions of the world are still prone, and the religions that people invent in their hearts are still prone, are they not, to emphasize religious rites and rituals and accomplishments that allow the participant to be proud, much like these first century Jews were proud of their temple and their ceremonies and their ethnicity and their adherence to the law. Whether a person is relying upon the Roman Catholic sacraments or their liberal Protestant good deeds or their adherence to Islamic law 
or the secular idea that they're a, quote, good person, or even their evangelical adherence to conservative moral values, in every case, the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, bursts that bubble, doesn't it? Whatever we choose to rely on, the message of salvation in Christ alone bursts the bubble. Because the gospel not only says that all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and that we can't save ourselves, but more importantly, the gospel says that Jesus is enough. His sinless life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection on the third day are absolutely enough to make us right with God. And thus, everything else, all of our customs and our ceremonies and our efforts contribute nothing to our salvation, not one ounce. Now, that's not to say that all of those customs and efforts are sinful in and of themselves. Many of them are not, just as keeping certain of the Old Testament ceremonies was not sinful for these first century Jews. But these things don't save, and they don't add to our salvation because Christ is enough. And I think, even though I highly doubt that these Jewish folks fully understood what Paul was saying, I think this is really what made them so irate with Paul. His preaching seemed to be saying that their rituals and their temple and their nationality and their customs, into which they'd put so much stock, were no longer of any real consequence. Now, he didn't say that in a nasty way. He didn't do it so as to rub anyone's nose in anything. But the message of salvation in Christ alone, and not on our own religious achievement or custom, shot down the hot air balloon of their national pride. And the fact that he preached such things to the Gentiles, chapter 22, well, that just made everything even worse. And so these men conspired to kill him because of it. And I think the lesson from this conspiracy is simply this, that while we may not expect people to make attempts on our lives, we should not be surprised if what we understand to be the best news in the world actually makes some people with whom we share it very irritated. We can and should share Christ as kindly as warmly, as hopefully, as positively as we possibly can. But the very fact that we're sharing Christ is going to rub some people the wrong way. Just like the Jews in Jerusalem, they're going to get the sense, rightly, that if only Jesus saves, then my own merit and my religion and all that I've been trying to accomplish for all these years does not And when that comes through, some people may, in fact, hate us for it. But when they do, we must, verse 11, take courage, as the Lord told Paul. Because we are in God's hands, and like Paul, he will watch over us until our work for him is complete. And God did watch over Paul, didn't he? Because now in verses 16 and following, we move on from this conspiracy to the counteraction, God's counteraction. Read with me beginning at verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. 
So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. The counteraction is what we're reading about here. God said that he would take care of Paul, and he did. He counteracted the plans of the conspirators and kept Paul safe as he had promised. Because Paul's nephew just happened to be in the right place at the right time to hear about the plans against Paul's life and to inform Paul and eventually to inform the Roman commander. And perhaps in large part because Paul was a Roman citizen, this military commander wielded the resources of the empire to an extraordinary extent, didn't he, to ensure Paul's safe passage out of the city of Jerusalem and to Caesarea, the seat of the imperial governor, Felix. And all this was God's doing. He promised Paul protection in verse 11, and he used Paul's nephew, and he used this Roman commander, and he used a large detachment of Roman soldiers as well to fulfill his promise. He is God over all of those people and sovereign over all of those events. And the promise of verse 11 was not only that Paul would be safe in Jerusalem by implication, but specifically that he would testify for Jesus at Rome. And by means of this transfer to the court of the Roman governor Felix, the Lord has now moved Paul one step closer to that ultimate purpose. 
And we're reminded here once again that God can not only counteract whatever evil, whatever circumstances seem to conspire against us, but also that our God is able to use the very trials that we face to move us even closer toward his ultimate plans for us and even closer toward his ultimate plans for the spread of the gospel. Like the sons of Jacob, who sold their brother into slavery in Egypt, only to find out that they had unwittingly moved him into precisely the best position to advance the purposes of God. So these Jewish conspirators, by making this attempt on Paul's life, only actually served to pay the missionary's travel costs and get him and his gospel closer to the remotest part of the earth than he had ever yet gone. They meant evil against him, but God meant it for good. You must witness at Rome also, the Lord said. And so I'm going to allow you to face this opposition. I'm going to allow you to face this uncertainty, to face this pressure, so that I can use this to place you in exactly the place I've prepared for you to speak for me. That's what's going on in these latter chapters of Acts. God is, through Paul's hardship and through the opposition that he faced, moving him into position to speak even more broadly for the Lord Jesus. You must witness at Rome also. I just wonder where it is that you must witness and where it is that I must witness. And if we'll have faith enough to trust that the trials of today and the difficulties of tomorrow may be precisely the means that God is using to get us to our own personal Rome. Now, I'd be disingenuous if I didn't admit to you that I cringe a little bit saying that. Because if I were supposed to share Jesus in Rome, I would prefer that God take me there on a round-trip airfare with a few extra days for sightseeing on either end, right? But that's not the way God always does things, is it? God's only begotten Son achieved God's great gospel purposes through suffering. And so his adopted sons and daughters must often do the same. And yet take courage, as the Lord told Paul in verse 11. Because until you get to your particular Rome, until you have fulfilled all the purposes that the Lord has for you in this world, the waters of opposition will not overflow you. He will keep you. And when you have served the purpose of God in your own generation, when you are finally engulfed in death, and when you see him just as he is with the nail prints in his hands and in his feet, then you will know that all the difficulties were worth it so that you might better serve such a Savior. So take courage, serve the Lord, endure hardship, and run with endurance the race that is set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus.